Hello and welcome to Intrafish Podcast number two, your dose of commentary and insight on the most compelling seafood stories we're covering here at Intrafish. I'm Drew Cherry, Editorial Director. I'm here with Executive Editor John Fiorillo. Hi, John. And with Intrafish Reporter Kim Tran. Hello, Kim. Hi. Well, we brought Kim in because she's our resident listeria expert, and that's one of the topics we're going to hit on today. Uh, well, we have Santa Barbara Smokehouse, who got embroiled in a pretty uh, nasty listeria find. Uh, very costly. They had to shut down the factory, had to clean it all, uh, and, and lost, uh, lost customers over it. And listeria is just, you, you say the word in the smoked salmon sector in the U.S. in particular, and you can just see people's faces turn white in, the, in that industry. Um, but Santa Barbara is saying in a lawsuit against uh, an affiliate of uh, Agro Super's Los Fiordos, a Chilean salmon farmer, that the product came in with listeria already on it. So, Kim, you put a lot of effort and work into covering uh, listeria in a series that we did um, late last year. But what was sort of the general opinion about how listeria is getting into smoked salmon um, and, and among manufacturers, are they feeling like that's coming in already on the raw material and, or is it just the factories are not cleaned or what? Well, so pretty much I did a five part series on Listeria last year and it seemed like the consensus was most of the salmon that's coming in is the raw material. Most of it is going into um, fillets, food service, retailers, um, a very small percentage is actually going into the smoked salmon sector. So because of that, there's not as much FDA testing as there could be. Um, and so a lot of it's falling through the cracks. Um, so I talked to uh, Gabriel Viteri with um, ACME, and he told me that there's not much understanding from the industry among raw material producers, the business um, customers who handle their products and their, uh, the, I guess the marketplace as a whole in terms of how much you have to do to control and eliminate listeria. There's a lot that goes into it. Um, and they, and I'm curious what you think, John, about this because uh, Acme has sort of taken the the tack with their new North Carolina facility of saying we're this is a listeria-free facility, and they're putting a lot of uh, effort into that. A lot of marketing into that. Do you think that's wise, or is that could that end up backfiring for them? Well, I don't know if I would market it, say, to consumers that we have a listeria-free <laughs> plant. But what I do like about what they're doing, and what I think is really kind of the critical point in my mind, is you, as an industry, have to protect the reputation of your products. And when you have listeria outbreak after listeria outbreak associated with a specific product, oftentimes smoked seafood, you begin to erode the reputation of that product in the consumer's mind. So it's not up to just the smokers. It's not up to just the suppliers of, of the raw material. Together, they have to come together and find a system that, you know, you never be 100%, but there has to be a better system than maybe what we've seen traditionally here. Acme also, uh, they went as far as controlling the source of their raw material. Oh, they opened right, yeah. up a facility down in Chile, and they said that that's one of the big reasons why they can very closely 
minor listeria. And, and we might see that more. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised, and maybe the Santa Barbara Los Fiordos case sort of illustrates why you might need to do that. Uh, because, um, you know, if, if you are potentially facing your, uh, your uh, company being shut down in some cases, I mean, some of these companies, you know, you can bring them really to their knees. If you're facing that, then uh, I think that people are going to want more and more to control their raw material as far back as they possibly can go. I don't know yeah. if that leads to vertical integration eventually or what, but Acme's gone all the way back to sourcing there in, in Chile, so maybe they'll go further back if there's other problems. Yeah, and you know, watchdog groups are always looking to pounce on seafood's lack of FDA inspections, and, or not lack of, but you know, a small amount of, and uh, there's just, you know, it's no reason to give them <laughs> any fodder in my mind. But, you know, I sympathize, though, with the smoked salmon sector because, and this is something you hit on a lot, Kim, uh, in your series, I ran into a lot, uh, and we did hear split, you know, split opinions on this, but in Europe you are allowed a certain amount of listeria. Uh, we have zero tolerance here in the United States. And I don't think that's reasonable. And I, I think that that creates all kinds of problems with just the way people produce their products, the way that people compete in the marketplace. Some people say, you know, absolutely zero tolerance should be right. You shouldn't have anything on your, you know, on your fish at all. But then you talk to some people and they say, you know what, listeria is everywhere. Bacteria is everywhere because obviously it is uh, on your keyboard, on your phone. And, you know, I talked to one uh, professor in Minnesota that was saying, you know, the, the most disgusting thing in your house is what you have up against your ear right now talking to me. So, yeah, you know. but you know, if I eat smoked salmon, I get listeria. It's completely different than if I caught a cold off my phone. People aren't, there's, there's a disconnect there, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, food scares are, are dangerous things and, mm. you know, they kill people. So yeah, I understand the zero tolerance. It seems unfair in an international arena that the product swims in, so to speak. But you know, if that's the law, that's the law. And the main thing is, if you get caught, you're gonna uh, be vilified, um, you know, exactly. by your buyers, by consumers, and by the press. And the recall center. cost is yeah. very high. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I remember people telling me when I was doing the series was. If a few that gets tested um, makes into the U.S. showing it's listeria-free, it doesn't guarantee that the entire batch is. And once one piece of salmon gets into your listeria-free clean facility, it pretty much contaminates the whole place. All right, so let's move on to uh, Surimi, uh, Maruha Nichiro's Trans Ocean. Uh, up in Bellingham, um, they're uh, taking a different marketing tack. Uh, the, one of the big bugbears of the surimi industry, they'll tell you, has been the whole idea of imitation crab. It was marketed that way for years, and you know, more than ever, people don't want to hear about uh, imitation anything. Um, so, John, your thoughts on whether or not this is, is going to work out by really focusing on the term surimi? The consumers know it well enough now. Well, it's, it's hard to know at this point whether it will be a success, but it's been a long time coming, and I... I applaud them for doing this. I think it's fairly brave in light of decades of calling this product imitation crab, imitation lobster, and nobody having, I guess, really the courage to, to break that mode. Um, and, and they've done it. 
Um, but they've also piggybacked this whole idea of this has fewer ingredients. They're all natural ingredients. They've kind of taken the, I don't know, just the chemically perception of, if that's a phrase, of, of the product away with this. So I'm really interested to follow this and see where it goes. They must have some data, some research that shows, you know, uh, more sophisticated consumers are now aware of what Serimi is. And they don't like the word imitation. I mean, they, they should try something because we know for years the Surimi category in the U.S. has been flat. So let's try something, anything to do something with this category. And, you know, I've, I've tried this out before, but it's it's really worth pointing out that in France and in Europe, they do market it as Surimi. They're a lot better about innovation. And um, and it's worked. I mean, it's a food that people kind of see as a as a snack, as as something portable you can put into a lunch or whatever. And it's worked out great. Um, and I, I think it's um, I, I think it's a, an interesting move. And like you said, I think we'll have to see whether or not it pays off. Yeah, I mean, I eat a lot of surimi. I like it. Um, there's definitely a difference between brands and quality. And my sense is that this one will be. A high-quality Serimi, um, at least that's what they're saying in, in the press announcements. So I'm I'm really excited to try it and see if it's raised the bar on the quality and not just been kind of a new marketing thing. Yeah. Well, we should do that, and I think we will do that. Let's let's test it out. Um, all right. Uh, our third topic for today is going to be uh, the ridiculous earnings of the salmon sector. Uh, based on the high salmon prices we saw earlier this year. Um, all the major companies, or most of the major companies, reported record high earnings. I mean, it's just astonishing how much this sector is making and how it's taking over the seafood sector. Um, but I want to know uh, what your thought is, John, on uh, whether or not consumers are going to push back against high salmon prices. We've seen a decline some of that sort of seasonal, we know there tends to be a little bit of decline in the fall before spiking up when people uh, start buying for Christmas. But have we reached kind of a ceiling here because the price has really plummeted off sharply, giving the sense that consumers said, okay, that's enough. But is there is there sort of a ceiling we're hitting with salmon? Well, I mean, it's just like any product, right? There is a, there is a price that is a price too far that people say, well, now it's just not worth it. I mean, the prices that they're paying now compared to a few years ago, they, they've definitely absorbed these price increases. Um, and salmon consumption, you know, is strong. It's strong not only in developed markets, but in developing markets as well. So, I I mean, I've, you know, I'm used to the boom and bust of the uh, farm salmon industry. Yeah. I think they've kind of... I think they've kind of figured it out, though. I think they've taken a lot of those uh, peaks and valleys out, and so I, I, I think we're okay. I mean, at the very least, what we're and we're seeing data on this that value-added products, we haven't seen a big fall on that. We haven't seen a big fall on smoked salmon consumption, and I think the more that they, this is why you should invest in a brand and why you should invest in value-added products is the more that they put into those products a higher theoretically the higher margins they can get the more bang per ounce of salmon and that's probably going to be more price resistant than, than just fresh 
raw salmon. Yeah, so. I think so because salmon has become part of, uh, at least in the U.S., part of a large part of American diet. It is, it's kind of a go-to seafood now these days. So, you know, people when they when they get established with a particular product, they they tend to be uh, willing to absorb more cost increase at least to a certain point, and I I think that's partly what we're seeing. Right. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you, John and Kim, for joining us. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Also, our podcast is streaming on SoundCloud.com, so just look for Intrafish Media and you can follow us there. And you can always reach us at editorial at Intrafish.com anytime. Bye.